Hello and welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning, a higher education podcast from the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm Katherine Ross, the Center's Executive Director. Let's get started. Note to listeners, this conversation was recorded before the COVID-19 pandemic. Our guest today is Dr. Michelle Miller, who joins us live at Columbia University. Dr. Miller is a professor of psychological sciences and the president's distinguished teaching fellow at Northern Arizona University. She is also the author of the book, Minds Online, Teaching Effectively with Technology. She recently worked with a group of colleagues in the Online Learning Consortium on the report, Neuromyths and Evidence-Based Practices in Higher Education. This report came out in 2019. Michelle, we're very excited to have you here. Hi, Catherine. It's great to be here. Can you give us some examples and explain how you see neuromyths in sort of the relationship to this dead ideas framework? Oh, certainly. So neuromyths, quite simply, are what we conceive of today in education as misconceptions about the mind, brain, and or learning. Um, that might pertain to teaching. And that, you know, in and of itself sounds kind of innocuous, right? Oh, a misconception. Um, However, some of these are some of the most notorious, um, unkillable ideas that are out there. And I'll say that these are things that I I know from my background as a psychologist. Uh, Back when I was in graduate school, we would kind of kick these things around and and kind of laugh and say, can you believe that people um, still believe in this idea? And so what a shock now, (laughs) decades later, to be teaching and be occasionally running across these ideas. So um, neuromyths, some examples of these, um, probably the most famous one within psychology and cognitive psychology is the notion that we only use 10% of our brains. Now, this has, has never been a plausible idea. We, and if you'd like to trace the history of this, it is a sort of a fascinating uh, urban legend that goes back a long time, and there's lots of ideas about where it came from. Um, however, in today's era of neuroscience, where you can literally sit in a brain scanner um, uh, of different kinds and watch activity happening in the brain, the idea that this can, that uh, we use 10% of our brains, um, it's amazing that has longevity. So that's one example. Uh, another which cropped up, I, I think, more recently in learning and education is the idea of visual, auditory, kinesthetic learning styles, which, again, if you have a background in cognitive psychology or neuroscience, you can look at that and say, uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. That it, information has to come in through the eyes for some people or through the ears for some people. Our brains and our minds recode information across sensory modalities quite readily. We do that all the time. But more recently, there's been some, some very compelling work that really does show that uh, kind of identifying somebody's learning style and matching instruction to it does little to nothing to um, actually supporting learning. So those are some uh, examples and ideas. And I do want to credit here um, uh, uh, some individuals who I've worked with, uh, Kristen Betts, who is, of course, the lead author on this Neuromyths International Report. She came up with the idea. She saw the need. She put the team together. So her leadership here has been amazing. 
and also one of the co-authors on the study, Tracy Tokama Espinosa, uh, recently came out with an entire book on this topic. So uh, there's a lot to learn from a lot of different individuals in the field. So in your book, Minds Online, you show how principles of cognition can inform effective uses of technology for teaching. What dead ideas were you trying to address in that book? Ah, so I think um, what I hit on were some of the the very same things like thinkers such as Pike and other leaders in the space have hit upon. Um, One of them has to do with the idea that technology by itself will have this sort of magical uh, magical um, effect on learning and support learning in and of itself. And like so many of our other neuromyths and, and dead ideas, it's got this gloss of like, ooh, it's new. There's a little bit of wishful thinking that informs that because, wow, wouldn't that be cool if that were the case? <laughs> we could buy the iPads, bring them in, and everything would just catch fire in our classrooms. And, you know, we are in this time of of tremendous upheaval and social change, and so much of that hinges on technology. And, of course, it becomes very natural to say, well, of course, learning itself will radically change just as a function of the presence of, of technology or similarly that any technology out there, if it's popular in a non-learning context, that will be part of learning too. So I think, for example, about social media, <laughs> um, which has some upsides and, and but definite downsides um, for bringing into the classroom. So similarly, the idea that um, there are these radical generational differences, uh, again, largely due to technology um, that impact learning, I see that as a, as a kind of a, a dead idea as well. Um, and then the idea, uh, though, uh, that um, teaching and learning with technology or online or blended learning is a fad that will go away. Um, I don't know if that idea has been around long enough to call it dead, but that's one that I that I do believe is incorrect. So on the one hand, no, we're not going to see suddenly education gets transformed the way, you know, and and universities go the way of Blockbuster. I I think we all saw some of those predictions as well. Uh, On the other hand, um, there have been some radical and deep changes that we're all going to be coexisting with going forward. Radical and deep, huh? Well, I think one of the, the themes that will be with us for some time is the idea that learning sciences and learning principles that have been around, again, for a very long time, those principles can be leveraged in different ways. And increasingly, I think we are selling our students short if we do not take advantage of those. Probably the most obvious um, example of this, um, the most shining example, however you want to put it, is simply retrieval practice. So this is a principle that uh, some of your listeners have probably run into it in one form or another, the idea that when we actively retrieve information, um, that's not a neutral act for memory, as, as one thinker put it, that just taking quizzes and quiz-like activities about information we're trying to master is very, very powerful for fixing that information in memory. And that may seem like a very lowly, Thing. I mean, after all, we didn't get into this just to have students, you know, memorize information. However, building a base of, of knowledge is very important for developing expertise in that area. And now we, we have this great avenue for making this happen so much more quickly and so much more reliably. 
Well, just try doing this with pencil and paper and non-digital technologies. I know because I tried. I was that person who was carrying big boxes of, of quizzes down to my Introduction to Psychology course because I had learned um, in, in, in the 80s and 90s, we already knew that those quizzes were going to help students. And it also has other wonderful um, side effects, such as giving students feedback. And we even find these days um, with some of the latest research that when you know more about an area, when you've learned about it in more efficient ways involving retrieval practice, you can actually think better in that area. So this is, this is great stuff. And what a wonderful um, use of technology. So that dovetails so nicely with what technology can do so well. I think that's one of the radical changes that we all need to kind of have on our horizon. Not, oh, we got to bring a box of iPads because the kids are about technology. Right. <laughs> um, there's everything is wrong with that statement. Right. But mindfully incorporating um, applications, techniques, and programs that run so much better on a technology platform that we need to pay attention to. So it's not just because students are digital natives. Oh my, yes, and what a phrase that is. And you know, it really did take on life of its own um, when that phrase was coined not too long ago. But when I sat down to write Minds Online, that was that was the, the current belief that, well, you know, here's this metaphor at the center of that, and the metaphor is one's native language, that uh, if you grow up speaking technology, um, or not speaking technology, well, you know, you can uh, start to use technology or, or enter that world when you're older, but you'll always kind of struggle. You know, you're never going to be like somebody who picked it up when they're younger. And so that idea of a divide, it also, you know, that metaphor implies that if we're not using technology, oh my gosh, those digital natives are going to be disadvantaged. They're always going to be translating in some way. And all those, all those assumptions really fall apart. And that one as well, I mean, as many people have observed, me included, the problem here, it is a real practical one. I mean, we can kind of giggle about generational differences and whether they exist. But here's the thing. Number one, if you believe in the digital natives um, myth, I'm just going to call it a myth, then, you know, students who are not traditional college-aged, um, who are increasingly the norm in higher education, not the exception, uh, you're going to look at those students and say, well, you know, maybe this online course isn't for you. That might be in the back of your mind. And what a disadvantage, what a prejudice to put onto our, our learners. Um, you will assume that middle-aged individuals um, are not going to have the technical capabilities, and they may. On the flip side, what's also very clear is that you will probably overassume the skills and capabilities of your traditional college-age students. So uh, your 18-year-old who walks in your classroom, they look like they were born with the earbuds in their ears, they're glued to their phones. Well, that's great, but the likelihood that that student has some technical capabilities over and above what you need just to use social media or game or, or whatever their preferred recreational activities are, I mean, they may not have them at all. And that, you know, is, is another lesson that we get right from cognitive psychology, that when we learn a thinking skill, it tends to stay in that context. So I may be wonderful at figuring out um, Instagram and how exactly to, to edit my photos and, and post them the way I want. But then when I get in the learning management system, 
all those skills, you know, they evaporate, they're gone. So that, um, that one idea, I think, can lead us down the wrong road in a lot of ways. Hmm. That's interesting. So I think I'd like to move this conversation a little bit deeper into your own practices um, and your own teaching. Um, how the research, um, your reporting on neuromyths changed, how you teach with technology. You've already given us a couple examples of that. Can you think of a specific moment when something changed around your a sort of aha moment or light bulb moment when you realized you could do something a different way, a better way? So, you know, picture me in my very first teaching assignment at Northern Arizona, uh, a long time ago, and as all newcomers to the department were, we, I was assigned to teach Introduction to Psychology, which I, I'm teaching again now, and I, I do love that class. But at the time, it was like, well, here's this, you know, what we thought of as a, being a really huge class. It was 100 people, and oh, no, it's, it's this giant thing. Um, and I was bound and determined to apply what I had learned in school, that, that this very exciting new stuff about retrieval practice and spaced practice as well, that you want to get students engaging with material and break down that pattern of, of cramming, which tends to be very natural in that type of college course. You know, and our methodology at the time was just to tell students not to cram, and we thought that would work. Um, and I thought, I'm going to do, I'm going to go about this differently. Yes, exhortation, that was, that's, uh, that was the methodology I was raised on, and what do you know, there's better things to do. Um, so I, w I had my big boxes of quizzes, and I was, you know, just overburdening my poor teaching assistants, and the students were getting pretty tired of bringing pencils to class and so on. So a colleague of mine, Kay Lori Dixon, who's, who now is, is one of our upper leaders at, at Northern Arizona, um, said, you know, they now have these this sort of software that actually comes with the textbook and you can buy it and this disc comes in the book and you sort of unglue it out of the book and pop it in and it's got these quizzes. What do you know? Oh, well, but they would be taking those quizzes at home and what about test security? Say, no, no, it's actually part of the learning practice. Oh, wow, we could assign these. And I thought that, that's really great. No more big boxes of paper, and we could put this idea to the test. And she further proposed, she said, look, we have multiple sections of this course running. We could make a scholarship of teaching and learning project and actually set up an experiment, you know, using the, the tools and the lens of our discipline to attack this. And uh, we did. We actually published a, a little series of studies um, on the impact of this, at the time, really brand new technology, online quizzes. Who ever heard of such a thing? And so really, from years back, um, I started working with that, seeing the power of it to support students in developing the foundational knowledge they need. Again, not to turn the whole class into an exercise in testing and memorization, but to get them immersed in that material so they could come to the class, and even in a class of 100, you can get a good discussion going when we've actually read about Piaget before class, or we, we know who Ivan Pavlov is and what the deal is with the dog and the bell, and we have questions about that. So, uh, you know, that was the context in which I really started to shift this practice and to say, yeah, this is stuff that showed up in journals. We can make it happen in a classroom, and technology is sometimes that missing piece that lets us make that leap from theory to practice. So it even had 
um, other impacts beyond just improving student learning and performance, say, on exams. It changed the nature of your classroom interactions as well, it sounds like. Yeah, I, I think so. When you fast forward a, a few more years, we re redesigned it. It's even larger. And now uh, um, these online quizzes are, are built into the class. Um, another thing that really helps is having those, some of those assessments, those formative assessments, do very early in the semester. And this kind of at the time flew in the face of some conventional wisdom. You want to let the students come in and relax. We had this idea that tests were scary and upsetting for students, and you wouldn't want to do that until, you know, it's six weeks in and they're sort of locked into the course. But we started having just a few things be due, even if they were just surveys or needing to set up an account, and then those quizzes would start. And that radically changed the mood of this large foundational course as well. And, you know, I think that we had run into an issue with students Quite naturally, I'm not blaming them for this, but they would come in, they'd say, oh, okay, there's a multiple choice test at six weeks in. You know, I have other things going on. I'm in a chemistry course, and I'm going to go study for that instead of this. And it really subtly started to um, set their expectations kind of artificially low for this course early on. Now, of course, introduction to psychology, you know, it may look like a piece of cake, but it's got a textbook that's two inches thick, and there's a lot, there gets some, to be some very sophisticated material. So students would really be disadvantaged midway through the semester when they started to realize, oh, wow, I, I'm really kind of behind, and I didn't even know it. And what an upsetting experience. 97% of the students in that course as well were first-year students. So that was a real, you know, a real bottleneck and a real problem for them. So by having some of these assessments due early, we're starting to take advantage of that learning effect that's straight out of the psychology uh, journals and the research but also affecting, in a way, um, their motivation and their expectations about the course. And I really, I felt a change. I really did. Students would come to class and just have this, okay, wow, we hit the ground running. This class is, is for real. I'm not scared or upset or feeling judged. I feel engaged. I feel engaged. There's a lot to engagement. I'm not saying that just having a quiz online is what you need to really um, light that motivational fire, but it has a surprising amount of impact for the investment. Wow. It's a, it sounds like it was also helpful for motivating the students to um, maybe take more ownership of their learning, to see where that how they were doing, and to think about that sooner, as you said, not just put it off until the high-stakes assessments come along. Oh, uh, yes. And, and how much we love that phrase, ownership of learning. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, as faculty, it's so easy to, you know, be focused on that sort of runway right in front of you. So much is coming at us so fast, and we're so focused on, you know, the latest 20 emails that came in from students overnight. And we need to step back and say, what are we really trying to equip students with? And to me, of course, one of the, the big things we're trying to equip students with is the ability to, to regulate and manage and own their own learning, no matter what they try to do. I mean, if you're teaching a course like Introduction to Psychology, um, most of the students are not going to go on to any other psychology courses, let alone a career in psychology. And that's fine with me. I think that's wonderful. We In, in psychology, we in our discipline have this um, value of giving psychology away. That's what, we, that's what we're there to do. Um, but we also want to give students the ability to succeed in that chemistry course, that nursing course. 
whatever else it is. And I think being a psychologist, I also know that it is easier said than done to give people that those metacognitive and learning abilities. It isn't just a matter of saying, here's a list of, of study tips. Students really have to try these for themselves, and they have to see them in action. They have to see that, oh, wow, yeah, this weekly quiz that seemed kind of like a pain for me to have to do on Sunday, now I'm not cramming. Now I can relax. And once students have had that experience, there's some research out there that shows that they can transfer that pretty well once they've had that very deep experience. So that's interesting. Um, did you make space for students to do any explicit metacognitive reflection? Because sometimes without that, they don't always get rid of their own, you know, the neuromyths they have about learning, right? And what metacognition is really about is trying to help students understand how learning works. I mean, how can you not have a whole course in thinking and memory and so on and not say, oh, by the way, here's how you can actually use this. So we try to do that. Um, on the other hand, I think that we do need to exploit other opportunities to do this. Again, there's there's great research out there, and I'm doing a little work myself to say that a relatively short intervention where you just say, hey, here's here's an assumption you've probably had about learning. Let's examine it. It's probably wrong. What do you think about that? Those can be very powerful for how students think about learning, for their ability to do things like persist when they get a grade that they don't like and, and um, adopt better study strategies and so on. On the one hand, these interventions can be powerful. On the other hand, as I think all of us feel like our syllabi and our curricula are getting more and more and more crammed into them, just like a, a suitcase that's ready to burst at the seams, when does it happen? I will always remember a student I had in a course I was teaching on adult second language acquisition. And one of the first readings was um, learning how to learn because I wanted them to understand what we know about learning generally before we get into language learning specifically. And it was a class of mostly seniors who were about to graduate. And the second class, one of the students came in a little early and he walked up to me and said, how come no one ever told us this before? Oh. And I, that's exactly what I said. <laughs> oh, um, my goodness. Yeah. Um, so I think it can be very, very powerful when students discover that we know a lot about how they learn, and they would benefit from knowing that as well. I think he found it very empowering. He said, I wish someone had told me this sooner. I would have changed a lot of things I've done, but fortunately, I'm going to grad school, so I will use this as a graduate student. Oh, so, yeah. oh yes. I, I mean, students get information framed as sort of study tips or study skills. I sometimes feel that it's very generic, though. Right. And I think what what you're reflecting on here, you were in context. You were in the context of this course, this learning. And yeah, you and I both know these are principles that apply. Some of these principles apply no matter what you're learning, whether right. it's French verbs or OCHEM or intro to psychology. It's the same stuff. However, I think there is something very powerful to say, all right, here's the assessment that's coming up. Here's our goals. And here are some very specific techniques that I'm telling you, you know, you've established your credibility already with that student. They're already looking to you as their leader to say, what can you tell me to do with this information? Yeah. And when you do it that way, it can make a lifelong impact. Yeah, 
for sure. I really appreciate your research and all the publications you have and the ways in which you are helping us try to move people away from the neuromyths surrounding, particularly surrounding technology use, but in general, just the neuromyths around teaching and learning. So thank you so much for being here. Oh, and thank you for having me. What a great conversation. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode, ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music. Special thanks to the Language Resource Center at Columbia University for use of their recording studio.